Section 36 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16, Mr. Disraeli, Part 1. The speaker who rose into such sudden prominence in something like the position of a party leader was one of the most remarkable men the politics of the reign have produced. Perhaps if the word remarkable were to be used in its most strict sense and without particular reference to praise, it would be just to describe him as emphatically the most remarkable man that the political controversies of the present reign have called into power. Mr. Disraeli entered the House of Commons as Conservative member for Maidstone in 1837. He was then about 32 years of age. He had previously made repeated and unsuccessful attempts to get a seat in Parliament. He began his political career as an advanced liberal and had come out under the auspices of Daniel O'Connell and Joseph Hume. He had described himself as one who desired to fight the battle of the people and who was supported by neither of the aristocratic parties. He failed again and again, and apparently he began to think that it would be a wiser thing to look for the support of one or other of the aristocratic parties. He had before this given indications of remarkable literary talent, if indeed it might not be called genius. His novel, Vivian Gray, published when he was in his twenty-third year, was suffused with extravagance, affectation, and mere animal spirits, but it was full of the evidences of a fresh and brilliant ability. The son of a distinguished literary man, Mr. Disraeli had probably at that time only a young literary man's notions of politics. It is not necessary to charge him with deliberate inconsistency, because from having been a radical of the most advanced views, he became by an easy leap a romantic Tory. It is not likely that at the beginning of his career he had any very clear ideas in connections with the words Tory or radical. He wrote a letter to Mr. W. J. Fox, already described as an eminent Unitarian minister and rising politician, in which he declared that his fort was sedition. Most clever young men who are not born to fortune and who feel drawn into political life fancy, too, that their fort is sedition. When young Disraeli found that sedition and even advanced radicalism did not do much to get him into Parliament, he probably began to ask himself whether his liberal convictions were so deeply rooted as to call for the sacrifice of a career. He thought the question over, and doubtless found himself crystallizing fast into an advocate of the established order of things. In a purely personal light, this was a fortunate conclusion for the ambitious young politician. He could not then have anticipated the extraordinary change which was to be wrought in the destiny and the composition of the Tory party by the eloquence, the arguments, and the influence of two men who at that time were almost absolutely unknown. Mr. Cobden stood for the first time as a candidate for a seat in Parliament in the year that saw Mr. Disraeli elected for the first time, and Mr. Cobden was unsuccessful. Cobden had to wait four years before he found his way into the House of Commons. Bright did not become a member of Parliament until some two years later still. It was, however, the anti-Corn Law agitation which, by conquering Peel and making him its advocate, brought about the memorable split in the Conservative Party 
and carried away from the cause of the country squires nearly all the men of talent who had hitherto been with them a new or middle party of so-called peelites was formed graham gladstone sidney herbert cardwell and other men of equal mark or promise joined it and the country party was left to seek for leadership in the earnest spirit and very moderate talents of lord george bentinck mr disraeli then found his chance his genius was such that it must have made a way for him anywhere and in spite of any competition but it is not too much to say that his career of political advancement might have been very different if in place of finding himself the only man of first-class ability in the party to which he had attached himself he had been a member of a party which had palmerston and russell and gladstone and graham for its captains and cobden and bright for its habitual supporters this however could not have been in mr disraeli's thoughts when he changed from radicalism to conservatism no trace of the progress of conversion can be found in his speeches or his writings it is not unreasonable to infer that he took up radicalism at the beginning because it looked the most picturesque and romantic thing to do and that only as he found it fail to answer his personal object did it occur to him that he had after all more affinity with the cause of the country gentleman the reputation he had made for himself before his going into parliament was of a nature rather calculated to retard than to advance a political career he was looked upon almost universally as an eccentric and audacious adventurer who was kept from being dangerous by the affectations and absurdities of his conduct he dressed in the extremest style of preposterous foppery he talked a blending of cynicism and sentiment he had made the most reckless statements his boasting was almost outrageous his rhetoric of abuse was even in that free-spoken time astonishingly vigorous and unrestrained even his literary efforts did not then receive anything like the appreciation they have obtained since at that time they were regarded rather as audacious whimsicalities the fantastic freaks of a clever youth than as genuine works of a certain kind of art even when he did get into the house of commons his first experience there was little calculated to give him much hope of success reading over his first speech now it seems hard to understand why it should have excited so much laughter and derision why it should have called forth nothing but laughter and derision it is a clever speech full of point and odd conceits very like in style and structure many of the speeches which in later years won for the same orator the applause of the house of commons but mr disraeli's reputation had preceded him into the house up to this time his life had been says an unfriendly but not an unjust critic an almost uninterrupted career of follies and defeats the house was probably in a humour to find the speech ridiculous because the general impression was that the man himself was ridiculous mr disraeli's appearance too no doubt contributed something to the contemptuous opinion which was formed of him on his first attempt to address the assembly which he afterwards came to rule he is described by an observer as having been attired in a bottle-green frock-coat and a waistcoat of white of the dick swiveller pattern the front of which exhibited a network of glittering chains large fancy pattern pantaloons and a black tie above which no shirt-collar was visible completed the outward man 
a countenance lividly pale set out by a pair of intensely black eyes and a broad but not very high forehead overhung by clustering ringlets of coal-black hair which combed away from the right temple fell in bunches of well-oiled small ringlets over his left cheek his manner was intensely theatric his gestures were wild and extravagant in all this there is not much however to surprise those who knew mr disraeli in his greater days his style was always extravagant his rhetoric constantly degenerated into vulgarity his whole manner was that of the typical foreigner whom english people regard as the illustration of all that is vehement and unquiet but whatever the cause it is certain that on the occasion of his first attempt mr disraeli made not merely a failure but even a ludicrous failure one who heard the debate thus describes the manner in which baffled by the persistent laughter and other interruptions of the noisy house the orator withdrew from the discussion defeated but not discouraged at last losing his temper which until now he had preserved in a wonderful manner he paused in the midst of a sentence and looking the liberals indignantly in the face raised his hands and opening his mouth as widely as its dimensions would admit said in a remarkably loud and almost terrific tone i have begun several times many things and i have often succeeded at last i sir and though i sit down now the time will come when you will hear me this final prediction is so like what a manufacturer of biography would make up for a hero and is so like what was actually said in one or two other remarkable instances that a reader might be excused for doubting its authenticity in this case but nothing can be more certain than the fact that mr disraeli did bring to a close his maiden speech in the house of commons with this bold prediction the words are to be found in the reports published next morning in all the daily papers of the metropolis it was thus that mr disraeli began his career as a parliamentary orator it is a curious fact that on that occasion almost the only one of his hearers who seems to have admired the speech was sir robert peel it is by his philippic against peel that disraeli is now about to convince the house of commons that the man they laughed at before is a great parliamentary orator disraeli was not in the least discouraged by his first failure a few days after it he spoke again and he spoke three or four times more during his first session but he had learned some wisdom by rough experience and he did not make his oratorical flight so long or so ambitious as that first attempt then he seemed after a while as he grew more familiar with the house to go in for being paradoxical for making himself always conspicuous for taking up positions and expounding political creeds which other men would have avoided it is very difficult to get any clear idea of what his opinions were about this period of his career if he had any political opinions at all our impression is that he really had no opinions at that time that he was only in quest of opinions he spoke on subjects of which it was evident that he knew nothing and sometimes he managed by the sheer force of a strong intelligence to discern the absurdity of economic sophistries which had baffled men of far greater experience and which indeed to judge from his personal declarations and political conduct afterwards he allowed before long to baffle and bewilder himself more often however he talked with a grandiose and oracular vagueness 
which seemed to imply that he alone of all men saw into the very heart of the question but that he of all men must not yet reveal what he saw at his best of times mr disraeli was an example of that class of being whom macaulay declares to be so rare that lord chatham appears to him almost a solitary illustration of it a great man of real genius and of a brave lofty and commanding spirit without simplicity of character what macaulay goes on to say of chatham will bear quotation too he was an actor in the closet an actor at council an actor in parliament and even in private society he could not lay aside his theatrical tones and attitudes mr disraeli was at one period of his career so affected that he positively affected affectation yet he was a man of undoubted genius he had a spirit that never quailed under stress of any circumstances however disheartening he commanded as scarcely any statesman since chatham himself had been able to do and it would be unjust and absurd to deny to a man gifted with qualities like these the possession of a lofty nature for some time mr disraeli then seemed resolved to make himself remarkable to be talked about he succeeded admirably he was talked about all the political and satirical journals of the day had a great deal to say about him he is not spoken of in terms of praise as a rule neither has he much praise to shower about him any one who looks back to the political controversies of that time will be astounded at the language which mr disraeli addresses to his opponents of the press in which his opponents address to him in some cases it is no exaggeration to say that a squabble between two billingsgate fishwomen in our day would have good chance of ending without the use of words and phrases so coarse as those which then passed between this brilliant literary man and some of his assailants we have all read the history of the controversy between him and o'connell and the savage ferocity of the language with which o'connell denounced him as a miscreant as a wretch a liar whose life is a living lie and finally as the heir at law of the blasphemous thief who died impenitent on the cross mr disraeli begins his reply by describing himself as one of those who will not be insulted even by a yahoo without chastising it and afterwards in a letter to one of mr o'connell's sons declares his desire to express the utter scorn in which i hold his mr o'connell's character and the disgust with which his conduct inspires me and informs the son that i shall take every opportunity of holding your father's name up to public contempt and i fervently pray that you or some one of your blood may attempt to avenge the inextinguishable hatred with which i shall pursue his existence in reading of a controversy like this between two public men we seem to be transported back to an age having absolutely nothing in common with our own it appears almost impossible to believe that men still active in political life were active in political life then yet this is not the most astonishing specimen of the sort of controversy in which mr disraeli became engaged in his younger days nothing perhaps that the political literature of the time preserves could exceed the ferocity of his controversial duel with o'connell but there are many examples of the rhetoric of abuse to be found in the journals of the time which would far less bear exposure to the gaze of the fastidious public of our day 
the dueling system survived then and for long after and mr disraeli always professed himself ready to sustain with his pistol anything that his lips might have given utterance to even in the reckless heat of controversy the social temper which in our time insists that the first duty of a gentleman is to apologize for an unjust or offensive expression used in debate was unknown then perhaps it could hardly exist to any great extent in the company of the dueling system when a man's withdrawal of an offensive expression might be imputed to a want of physical courage the courtesy which impels a gentleman to atone for a wrong is not likely to triumph very often over the fear of being accounted a coward if any one doubts the superiority of manners as well as of morals which comes to our milder ways he has only to read a few specimens of the controversies of mr disraeli's earlier days when men who aspired to be considered great political leaders thought it not unbecoming to call names like a costermonger and to swagger like bobadil or the copper captain mr disraeli kept himself well up to the level of his time in the calling of names and the swaggering but he was making himself remarkable in political controversy as well in the house of commons he began to be regarded as a dangerous adversary in debate he was wonderfully ready with retort and sarcasm but during all the earlier part of his career he was thought of only as a freelance he had praised peel when peel said something that suited him or when to praise peel seemed likely to wound someone else but it was during the debates on the abolition of the corn laws that he first rose to the fame of a great debater and a powerful parliamentary orator we use the words parliamentary orator with the purpose of conveying a special qualification he is a great parliamentary orator who can employ the kind of eloquence and argument which tell most readily on parliament but it must not be supposed that the great parliamentary orator is necessarily a great orator in the wider sense some of the men who made the greatest successes as parliamentary orators have failed to win any genuine reputations as orators of the broader and higher school the fame of charles townsend's champagne speech has vanished evanescent almost as the bubbles from which it derived its inspiration and its name no one now reads many even of the fragments preserved for us of those speeches of sheridan which those who heard them declared to have surpassed all ancient and modern eloquence the house of commons often found burke dull and the speeches of burke have passed into english literature secure of a perpetual place there mr disraeli never succeeded in being more than a parliamentary orator and probably would not have cared to be anything more but even at this comparatively early date and while he had still the reputation of being a whimsical self-confident and feather-headed adventurer he soon won for himself the name of one who could hold his own in retort and in sarcasm against any antagonist the days of the more elaborate oratory were going by and the time was coming when the pungent epigram the sparkling paradox the rattling attack the vivid repartee would count for the most attractive part of eloquence with the house of commons mr disraeli was exactly the man to succeed under the new conditions of parliamentary eloquence hitherto he had wanted a cause to inspire and justify audacity and on which to employ with effect his remarkable resources of sarcasm and rhetoric hitherto he had addressed an audience out of sympathy with him for the most part now he was about to become the spokesman of a large body of men 
who chafing and almost choking with wrath were not capable of speaking effectively for themselves mr disraeli did therefore the very wisest thing he could do when he launched at once into a savage personal attack upon sir robert peel the speech abounds in passages of audaciously powerful sarcasm i am not one of the converts mr disraeli said i am perhaps a member of a fallen party to the opinions which i have expressed in this house in favour of protection i still adhere they sent me to this house and if i had relinquished them i should have relinquished my seat also that was the keynote of the speech he denounced sir robert peel not for having changed his opinions but for having retained a position which enabled him to betray his party he compared peel to the lord high admiral of the turkish fleet who had a great warlike crisis when he was placed at the head of the finest armament that ever left the dardanelles since the days of soliman the great steered at once for the enemy's port and when arraigned as a traitor said that he really saw no use in prolonging a hopeless struggle and that he had accepted the command of the fleet only to put the sultan out of pain by bringing the struggle to a close at once well do we remember on this side of the house not perhaps without a blush the efforts we made to raise him to the bench where he now sits who does not remember the sacred cause of protection for which sovereigns were thwarted parliament dissolved and a nation taken in i belong to a party which can triumph no more for we have nothing left on our side except the constituencies which we have not betrayed he denounced peel as a man who never originates an idea a watcher of the atmosphere a man who takes his observations and when he finds the wind in a particular quarter trims his sails to suit it and he declared that such a man may be a powerful minister but he is no more a great statesman than the man who gets up behind a carriage is a great whip the opportune says mr disraeli himself in his lord george bentinck in a popular assembly has sometimes more success than the weightiest efforts of research and reason he is alluding to this very speech of which he says with perhaps a superfluous modesty that it was the long constrained passion of the house that now found a vent far more than the sallies of the speaker that changed the frigid silence of this senate into excitement and tumult the speech was indeed opportune but it was opportune in a far larger sense than as a timely philippic rattling up an exhausted and disappointed house that moment when disraeli rose was the very turning point of the fortunes of his party there was genius there was positive statesmanship in seizing so boldly and so adroitly on the moment it would have been a great thing gained for peel if he could have got through that first night without any alarm note of opposition from his own side the habits of parliamentary discipline are very clinging they are hard to tear away every impulse of association and training protests against the very effort to rend them asunder a once powerful minister exercises a control over his long obedient followers somewhat like that of the heart of the bruce in the fine old scottish story those who once followed will still obey the name and the symbol even when the actual power to lead is gone for ever if one other knight's habitude had been added to the long discipline that bound his party to peel if they had allowed themselves to listen to that declaration of the sessions first night without murmur 
perhaps they might never have rebelled mr disraeli drew together into one focus all the rays of their gathering anger against peel and made them light into a flame he showed the genius of the born leader by stepping forth at the critical moment and giving the word of command End of section 36.